Welcome back to Russian Roulette, the podcast from the Europe, Russia, and Eurasia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host, Heather Conley. In our last episode of this year, I am delighted to sit down with Masha Gessen, who I'm sure is known very well to many of our listeners as a, as a really extraordinary Russian-American journalist, author, translator, and activist, author of 11 books, uh, including The Future is History, How Totalitarianism Reclaimed Russia, and of course, uh, a very powerful work, The Man Without a Face, The Unlikely Rise of Vladimir Putin. Currently, Masha is a staff writer for The New Yorker. And it's there that we discuss Masha's piece for The New Yorker about Russia's Nova Gazeta, one of the oldest running independent media outlets in Russia, led by Dmitry Muratov as the editor-in-chief. Uh, you may recognize that name because Dmitry Muratov, along with Filipina journalist Maria Ressa, received this year's Nobel Peace Prize, quote, for their efforts to safeguard freedom of expression, which is a precondition for democracy and lasting peace. After we talk about Masha's peace and, and the state of journalism in Russia, we broaden out our conversation to a variety of insightful issues about Russian society and the freedom of, of expression in Russia today. It's a fascinating conversation, and I can't wait to get started. Let's go. Masha, we are so excited to have you on the Russian Roulette podcast. Your writing is always extraordinary. I'm a huge reader of your articles in the New Yorker, New York Times, and you write uh, op-ed pieces. But you had a particularly interesting piece in the New Yorker on November the 22nd, the letter from Moscow. And in it, and I, these are my words, you lovingly describe a very special newspaper, Novaya Gazeta, and a very unique editor-in-chief of Novaya Gazeta, Dmitry Muratov, who just won the Nobel Peace Prize. And so what I'd love to do is just draw you out a little bit on that article. Sort of first, what was the inspiration for you to write that article? And then I, I would love for you to help our listeners understand, and you had this wonderful phrase, the Soviet tradition of newspapers as a court of justice. And uh, we know how important free press is and, and, and holding government and others accountable, but I never thought of it as a court of justice. So help us understand why you wrote this loving letter from Moscow, in my view, and what makes a Soviet newspaper and that tradition a court of justice. Thank you, Heather. This is this is great. I mean, it's it's lovely to be here. I've also it's such a great read of that piece because it is it is kind of a love letter. Um, and I love that you picked up on this description of Soviet newspapers as a court of justice because the, you can tell that you think about Russia a lot. Most people, you know, picked up on on other descriptions. So you know, in the Soviet Union, the version the Soviet version of totalitarianism was almost a perfectly opaque bureaucracy. And people were pretty used to, to being constantly subjected to arbitrary rules, arbitrary enforcement, arbitrary everything, and having no recourse except you could write a letter. And, um, and you know, certainly by the time I was a kid, you couldn't, nobody was writing letters to the party committee, right? Nobody was writing letters to their local municipal council or whatever, because that was clearly part of that whole machine that was just, you know, it was just a black box and you were on the outside of it. But you could write a letter to the newspaper. And then if the newspaper decided that it was 
the kind of injustice that could be pursued in an exemplary fashion, right? So you could never complain about something huge. You know, you wouldn't see the the head of the regional party committee prosecuted for something. It, it's a little bit comparing sort of things on different scales, but the logic is the same, right? Like in China, you will often see local officials prosecuted for corruption and even executed for corruption. Um, but you will never see the, the entire Communist Party machinery challenged. And in Russia, it was on a much smaller scale. You could see in the piece, I used the example of an abusive teacher. And the reason I use that example is because I actually remember very well that my, um, for a while, my aunt, when she was, I think, just out of college or maybe still in college, she was uh, a field reporter for Literaturna Gazeta, which was a very influential weekly. So, you know, the way the, the papers worked was that the writers sat in the office in Moscow, but they would send somebody to, to the region to investigate the actual thing. So, so my aunt came back with like reams and reams and reams of interviews. And she typed them up. And then we sat at the dacha proofreading them. So I helped with proofreading them. And I remember just like delving into the story of this teacher who had, I think she had hit a student. And then, you know, the family had tried to find recourse and they couldn't. And I think it ended up being a, a piece in the paper and the poor teacher was, was prosecuted. I have very mixed feelings about it these days, but um, not that I endorse teachers hitting students, but, um, but that kind of, you know, demonstrative justice is also hugely problematic. But that tradition, right, that I can write to the paper and my story will be heard and change will happen. That's very much a part of the legacy of Nova Gazeta, which I think is why Nova Gazeta cannot be strictly described as a newspaper. Right? And, I, and, I, and I say in the piece that, um, that if you imagine like the New York Times under challenging circumstances or even Mother Jones, the investigative magazine under challenging circumstances, you are thinking in the wrong direction right? because it's a community and it's a humanitarian organization and that big entity publishes a newspaper. And so... On a lot of occasions at Nova Gazeta, what would happen is that they would start looking at something and realize that there was a humanitarian gap there. And then they would start collecting money or demanding justice or talking to the relevant authorities or you know, collecting information that could be submitted to the relevant authorities so that the authorities had no choice but to do something. And that's very much a part of what they do. I love that my voice can be heard, that that was such a, that was a powerful outlet and at a time when, when there were no outlets or very few. And now today we see the, the transformation of what was in some ways a relatively free space in the 1990s of, of media. When Vladimir Putin arrived on the political scene, that was quickly um, altered. But yet, Nevada existed, continued to do those really courageous, brave stories to go where no reporters had the courage, particularly in Chechnya, at great cost and sacrifice to those reporters. Do you think, Dmitry Muratov, the editor-in-chief, did you feel that he bore the burden of the deaths of the journalists that were covering these stories? He certainly, in the piece, he documents how frightened he was of their harm and that his very unique ability to talk to the most senior officials to try to save them. 
how conflicted one must be to t- speak to the, the very people to try to negotiate your own staff's uh, safety. Do you think he was conflicted by that? You know, that's a great question. I don't know that he was conflicted. And I don't want that to sound like, like a judgment. I think that it's very much his mission to ensure that the paper exists. I mean, to some extent, that's the mission of every editor-in-chief. Every editor-in-chief, you know, if we think about our capitalist context, um, which, you know, for the record, is extremely unhealthy in its own ways. But every editor-in-chief is always existing in this tension of these are the things we should be reporting on. These are the things that are most in need of our journalistic attention that will benefit most from our writer's talents. Uh, This is what my writers can do best. And on the other hand, we need clicks. We need to increase web traffic. We need to attract advertisers. What kind of picture do we need advertisers to see? What kind of, um, you know, what kind of frequency do we need in order to, uh, to generate more web traffic? I mean, they sound like trivial and logical concerns, but what I'm saying is that every editor is always first and foremost, the guarantor of the continued existence of a publication. So in Muratov's case, that work is constantly negotiating for survival, right? I mean, that's what he does. He gets up in the morning and he has some number of conversations, whether by phone or or in person or just check-ins to make sure that, that the newspaper continues to exist. And he absolutely refuses to talk about what he once referred to as his secret diplomacy, which he acknowledges that he engages in. And fair enough, of course, it wouldn't be secret if he talked in The New Yorker about it. But one of the writers said, you know, once in a while, he says, OK, guys, get everything that you have in the works in the paper, because we're probably going to have to shut down. So let's make sure we publish everything. And then after a few weeks, he says, OK, as you were. And then they continue churning until the next crisis happens. And, you know, some of these crises are financial, which is totally inseparable from the political situation, because, of course, you know, now I look at the print edition of Nova Gazeta, there's not a single advertisement. And there can't be, because commercial entities are under even more directly vulnerable to political pressure. So they stay away from anything controversial. It does, you know, and your decision-making is based on survival. It's a very different calculation that, that you have to make. Describe for me in the article, it talks about the editing room, the, the staff meetings of these uh, reporters. You describe it as democracy, that there was great democracy. That, and you describe these extraordinary scenes where, you know, reporters and uh, Molotov were just yelling at each other and arguing. They were it was really a pure form of democracy and that rough conversations, but everybody was heard. Again, that continuity of your voice will be heard, even in the newsroom. How could that sort of microcosm of free democracy and uh, how did that translate into some of the paper stories that they wrote? So, you know, I don't know that I would call it a democracy. I might actually call it an anarchy, which, you know, I'm not using anarchy as a derogatory fine term. Line. To, uh, well, I'm not using uh, anarchy as a derogatory term to to designate something that has no structure, right? I'm using anarchy to designate something that is constantly evolving as a self-governing mechanism, which, and yes, there's a fine line between that and, and democracy. But I think when we think about democracy, we think about voting, elections, you know, procedures, which is all there too. But I'm more interested in sort of the anarchic 
the constantly self-inventing aspect of, of, of Nova Gazeta, which, you know, I mean, technically Nova Gazeta has an elected editor-in-chief and they do elect him every two years. They have an elected editorial board and they have an elected ethics council, which is a new edition. But they also have this thing where they can call a general meeting. So, for example, uh, Yelena Kristichenko, which is one of the star reporters at Nova Gazeta and really an extraordinary journalist. She, I described this incident when Muratov said something that she understood to be uncritical publicly. And he was on the air, on the radio, and praised another journalist's story on the same topic, somebody who didn't work at Nova Gazeta. And so she called a general meeting and they discussed a statement. And first he said, I didn't criticize. And they said, well, yeah, you did. And then he apologized. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a performal apology. It wasn't, I don't know that it was a sincere apology. It was, it was a really interesting thing because um, it was recorded on video so I could watch it. It was like an apology that he realized he had to make, which is very much a part of sort of governance, right? I don't think he felt as bad about having said what he said as maybe Kostichenko wanted him to, but he also realized that he'd done something wrong. Another anarchic aspect of it is that like another reporter, Yelena Malashva, uh, who, who reports on Chechnya, who's basically carried that mantle since um, Anna Politkovska was killed 15 years ago, she says that she has these huge fights with Muratov and she's resigned more times than she can count. And so she actually submits her resignation letter and then he rips it up. But I think she, like on occasion, she's considered herself to have quit. So she was not bound by whatever limitations he had placed on her. So she would go to Chechnya when he didn't want her to go to Chechnya. And then she would come back and she would be still working at the paper. So then she would submit her report. Masha, it's both anarchic and theatrical, I, I, I must say. So, <laughs> oh, it's high drama, yes. High drama. Before I leave this, this is mm. such an interesting microcosm, and I want to get to sort of the wider space here. But right. was the awarding of the Nobel Prize, was that a positive thing for the paper, for Muratov, or was it a dangerous thing? Because it highlighted the very dangerous work that they do at great cost. Right. That's that's another Great question. But hang on, I actually want to say, I, I didn't respond directly to your question about the microcosm, so let me do it now. There's a great quote from Kostichenko that didn't make it into the piece. She said, we're trying to create the society that we want to live in, right? So in a way, Nova Gazeta is constantly modeling what might be possible uh, in, in Russia among a group of extremely different people, right? It's, it's not a tight-knit family kind of business situation, right? It's really, really diverse uh, and contradictory. And sometimes they will publish pieces that argue with each other. And once they introduced a, an actual department, they only published one piece in it, but the, the, the department was called Disagreements Among the Editorial Staff, <laughs> which I was like a humor column, but was not. So, um, so the Nobel Prize, one of the first tweets from another journalist about the Nobel Prize was, oh, great, this is the best protection against being designated a foreign agent. But then when I called Muratov, I said, do you think it's the best protection against being designated a foreign agent? And he said, well, is that or the opposite? It's clearly foreign money. And one of the things actually 
that is clear in um, this whole foreign agents saga is that a lot of the individuals who've been designated foreign agents are people who have received some kind of prize from a foreign country. Uh, I think it's partly the public recognition, partly because it's Googleable. And then they can say, okay, you know, you got this money from a foreign entity. So I don't know what the answer is, right? It may be that it's a short-term protection, long-term liability. That's a great, a great way of, of putting it. So help me understand, it's always been frustrating to me that Russia used to have a, quite a vibrant internet and it was left alone. And then we've seen over the last several years is the closing of that space quite dramatically in some ways, emulating a bit of the Chinese and the Great Firewall, trying to control it, slow it down, call it sort of digital authoritarianism, if you will, to, to try to manipulate it because people like Alexei Navalny were using it so effectively, whether that was, you know, highlighting the, the videos of, of, of reported alleged wealth of the elite or whether um, it was, you know, smart voting apps and things like that. Part of this was getting uh, to be part of this, you know, more dynamic internet, social media type of thing. How does the regime's efforts on sort of closing that internet space and a younger generation that's using it more and more, how do those forces interact? And what do you think will eventually, who will win out the clever young people who can go around all the roadblocks that the authoritarians put in place? Or this is going to be, there's going to be really no major availability of outside information to to penetrate uh, Russia's, you know, real closing of media in Russia? Right. You know, I mean, the, the, the broad answer to this is that restrictions work. They work very, very well. And I think that a lot of the time we think about them a little bit more too technologically and especially, you know, sort of analysts sitting outside the country tend to think, oh, you know, but they can shut down all of the internet or their, you know, their systems are not as total as the Chinese systems, which, you know, that's actually changing. But also, I think that's the wrong way to think about it because there's a kind of, um, and I, I, I like to use this term, I've been using it for, for a long time, and I, I think it's useful, right, to think about the economy of terror. The Soviet Union invented an economy of terror in the 1970s. When Stalin was alive, terror had to be total. That was the understanding of totalitarianism. In the 1970s, in that post-Stalin space, it became very clear that a little terror goes a long way. You know, very few people, for example, were prosecuted for having Samazdat or Tamazdat, right? foreign published uh, information or, or, or underground publishing. In fact, I'm not sure that anyone was directly prosecuted solely for distributing Tamazdat or Samazdat. And yet, it was understood to be a very high risk. And so it was kept in secret, uh, you know, while it circulated, it circulated in a very narrow space. And the distribution was, you know, it was muted. Like, for example, parents were afraid to talk to their children about it because their children might talk to someone else about it and they might get exposed, even though there was so little actual enforcement. 
And so if you sort of keep that in the back of your mind and think about the way that Russia has managed the internet, you know, it may look incredibly inefficient to say that they're shutting off access to certain domains, which have they've been doing now for nearly a decade. Uh, because, you know, you can use a VPN. And also there are other sites. But what we've seen now for a decade is that what actually happens to a domain that, to which access has been shut off by the authorities is that the traffic will spike immediately after access is shut off because people are motivated, because there has been attention drawn to them. And, um, and so people will use VPN you know, proxy servers to get to the website. And then after a few weeks or a couple of months, their traffic will drop catastrophically because people can't be bothered anymore, right? And so um, it's not total. It may look quite inefficient, but it is actually quite effective at narrowing the space and continuously decreasing the audience of all of these resources. I think that will continue happening. I'm not going to make any predictions about totally, you know, totally shutting off the internet or completely, you know, discontinuing Twitter, Facebook, not impossible, entirely possible, right? But I don't know that these are things to watch for. The, the single thing to watch for is just the continued narrowing of the space. And that's happening and it's happening at an accelerated rate. Let me pull that thread out a little bit more because, yes, I mean, many, many analysts suggest that the repression that they're seeing now uh, that the regime is imposing has striking similarities. In fact, in some ways, there was more space even during the Soviet era. So, again, we can't make predictions. Uh, Where does this go from here? Does it just keep tightening? And then either people get very creative or they resign to the fact that it's a shrinking space and it's a different reality and they'll have to do that. We're starting to see where, you know, younger people are leaving, particularly very tech savvy individuals because they know that space is shrinking. So is it sort of an outflow, a brain drain, if you will, and perhaps resignation for those that are going to try to do what they can within the confines of what the economy of terror is, as you mentioned? Um, I think it's both. Right. Um, and certainly people have been leaving for a long, long time. We don't have accurate statistics because it's so hard to tell. You know, it's, it's a different kind of immigration. People are not surrendering their passports when they leave. But anecdotally and through the available statistics, we can see that there is just a constant outflow of talent. And in particular, in the last six months, we have seen a huge outflow of journalists. It's not that there were many left, but um, but a lot of them are out of the country and some of them aren't saying that they're out of the country, but they're out of the country you know, because it's a question of personal safety and security. On the other hand, yes, people are going to continue using whatever space is available. And these people are heroes and some of the work that they're doing is extraordinary. And I think you know, in, in some ways we've seen a kind of blossoming of Russian journalism in the last couple of years, in part for reasons sort of unrelated to the repression, which is just the growing availability of big data and the skills that people have for working with big data, which is something that was in a way in the Russian space pioneered by Navalny, but has now been picked up by several um, very agile, very inventive, small 
organizations that the, the regime is like completely crazed about. And all of their editors have been forced into exile at this point. What uh, we refer to as the Roman Empire, because all three editors of these publications are happen to be called Roman. <laughs> so, and and yet, you know, and the, the other reason that that there's been a kind of flowering is because there's something energizing about direct confrontation, right? There have been entire years in the last decade when the pressure was increasing, but there was no sense of direct confrontation. But right now, you know, there are arrests, there are designations of foreign agents. Uh, there's the, the movement to shut down Memorial, which is a really important, both practically and symbolically, move. And so that's, you know, that's getting people kind of fired up. And yet, the problem with having such a tiny space is that it's not generative, right? It can only be reactive through no fault of the people who work there. That's just the way it works. If you have a tiny handful of people in constant confrontation with a huge machine, all these people can do is react and try to document what's happening. They cannot think, they cannot be creative, they cannot be inventive, you know, outside the sort of the terms of this confrontation. They cannot be imaginative about the future, which is really, you know, it's not, I don't think it's conscious policy, but it's ultimately that's the point of all of this political pressure is, is to preclude a different future. But as you were saying, you know, again, between sort of that survival desire uh, that uh, Dmitry Muratov has to produce every single day to exactly to the journalist, this sort of existential reaction uh, to it, that is is a different mentality uh, than exactly, as you said, exploring, dreaming, thinking creatively. I want to just pull a little bit on, on the Alexei Navalny question, because the Anti-Corruption Foundation, the movement, all the uh, officials around Navalny have been very successfully shut down, left the country, unable to move forward, of course, uh, with Navalny's jail term, which I assume would be an almost indefinite jail term. Is there any way another movement, maybe it's not on corruption, maybe it's on environmental issues, that could be developed in sort of using internet, things like that, or that space is just gone. The regime has really perfected ending meaningful challenge to it. It's very hard. I mean, I, you know, I don't, I don't like to make predictions. It's super hard for me to imagine that something new can be born and take root in Russia as it's, as it's currently functioning, right? Not because people can't imagine something, but because you need time, space, and resources for something to not only be invented, but actually come into reality. I mean, the, the amazing thing about Navalny is that he came up with this idea of the Anti-Corruption Foundation of using open source information and later non-open source information to expose corruption. Uh, he hired you know, half a dozen lawyers as soon as he had this idea. He, he crowdfunded this organization and really, it existed for, I'd say, seven years before. I mean, there was there was pressure on Navalny, but before there was really direct pressure on people working with Navalny on on the organization as such. That's a huge amount of time in which to create something, to gather people, to develop uh, a kind of organizational strategy and an ethic and aesthetic of working together. It's at this point, that kind of time is unimaginable. 
you you maybe have a couple of months to try to get something off the ground before you come under direct pressure. It goes back to the, you know, giving people a voice. How can we give people a voice? And the regime's actions have just eliminated completely that voice. So just from a closing question, so what fills that space when you so close and repress those that can't organize, becomes more and more dangerous to have uh, any type of independent journalism? Does what fills that space, clearly we were observing the Kremlin's use of um, not just nationalism, I would say um, faith, religion, traditionalism, traditional values, as sort of a something that maybe fills that space. Uh, what, does something come after this? What does the regime do? How do they, they've taken something away. Do they fill it or do they replace it with something else, an ideology, a nationalism, patriotism? What do they, what do they fill the space with? Right. No, that's, that's a really insightful question. Um, you know, what does the regime offer people in exchange for their sense of agency uh, in, exchange, in exchange for their sense of community. And what the regime offers is uh, the sense of belonging to something great. That's the bargain. That was the Soviet bargain. You're poor, you're tired, you're humiliated on a daily basis, but you're part of a great empire. You're a citizen of, of a superpower. And that's, you know, that's what the regime is reaching for. Uh, and I think that's the useful lens to think through the Kremlin's actions, right? How does Putin assert his greatness? The greatness of, of this empire. What, what can people be proud of? Right? For a long time, people were really proud of annexing Crimea. Are they going to be really proud of having Russian become a mandatory school-taught language in the countries of Central Africa? Possibly. I don't know. I mean, you need a lot to do a lot of sort of propaganda whipping to do that. You know, I don't think people are super proud of Russia being the first country to invent a coronavirus vaccine. A huge missed opportunity, but, you know, an instructive one. It's, it's really interesting to see why that's happening. So, but clearly sort of technical innovation and invention, which was a big part of the sense of greatness in Soviet times, is not working. So we see the amassing of troops on the Ukrainian border. Uh, I don't know what Putin is going to do. Right. But I think a much more useful way of thinking through why that's happening is not, you know, thinking about Nord Stream 2, but rather thinking about the sense of greatness that needs to be recreated, because that's the only thing that the government has to offer. Oh, that's that's really fantastic and really important for, for us to understand. Masha, this was an exceptional conversation. Thank you. I'm going to go back to my original view that you wrote a love letter from Moscow, a love of the great Soviet slash Russian tradition of, of media in its own unique way and how it gave voice for people, even at the local level. I loved your phrase of what Nova Gazette is trying to do is model the behavior they want to see in the future, dare to think about a a more positive, dignified future for the individual. So it's wonderful. And I encourage our listeners to read uh, Masha's um, letter from Moscow and the New Yorker. And of course, your exceptional insights into a really complex, uh, but incredibly important space for those in the United States and Europe in particular to understand where it's going. So thank you so very much. 
Thank you. Can I just add something to that? Because I of think, I think it's, it's important. You know, it's not just a love letter. It's also a letter of nostalgia. I miss being a Russian journalist. And I'm not the only person in that position. And I think that, you know, we, we tend to focus on what's there and we should focus on what's there. But just the incomparable loss of exile, especially for people who are in a profession that that is centered on language and that is centered on a sense of purpose and community purpose, right? And the fact that the Kremlin is forcing so many of these people out into exile, I'm so lucky that I learned English as a kid and uh, you know, I, can, I can have a career here, but it still doesn't compare to what I had in Moscow. Um, and that's true for, for so many people who are ending up abroad that sense of loss. And, and as you said, as, as people are having to leave, they're not, they're not giving their passport away. They, they are hoping this is an interim that they can return someday where there's more opportunity and freedom for them to, to give their voice. Um, so again, thank you. Um, as our listeners know, this is the end. Uh, this is our last podcast of 2021. And I, we've really covered the gamut. But as I like to say, I always like to save the best for last. And this was perhaps one of the most meaningful conversations that I've, I've had on, on Russian roulette. So thank you so much. Thank you. That's it for our 2021 show. Please check the show notes for links to Masha's fantastic piece in The New Yorker, Can Russia's Press Ever Be Free, that we discussed today, and certainly uh, their other works. I would like to thank everyone who worked so hard to make this podcast happen this year, including our producer, program manager, Roxana Gabudelina, and the entire CSIS external relations team. Of course, I wish our listeners a wonderful, safe, and warm holiday season and happy new year. This is not only the last broadcast of uh, Russian Roulette for 2021, it's also my last broadcast as director of the Europe, Russia, and Eurasia program. I, I am transitioning and I will be the incoming president of the German Marshall Fund of the United States uh, at the beginning of next year. But don't worry, Russian Roulette will continue. We're going to have some guest colleagues to help continue and keep this wonderful podcast going. Thank you again so, so much uh, for being part of my time as uh, leading the podcast for Russian Roulette. Keep listening, keep tuning in, keep sending us great ideas. Again, be safe, be well, happy new year. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.